Welcome to another episode of Creative Distillation. Your hosts, Jeff and Brad, from the University of Colorado Boulder's Leeds School of Business, discuss entrepreneurship research while enjoying fine craft beverages. Previously on Creative Distillation, Jeff and special guest host, Sean Hyatt, conduct field research at Real Soda in Real Bottles, a soda distributor based in the Los Angeles area. Speaking with founder Danny Ginsberg about his passion for soft drinks and how he got into the distribution business. This time, we're still at Real Soda and still joined by Sean Hyatt, business professor at USC, discussing his lifelong passion for soda and his paper, From Pabst to Pepsi. Danny sticks around for this segment as well. Between him and Sean, this is the summit of soda expertise. Their entertaining stories reveal an expansive knowledge of the industry's fascinating history. Enjoy and cheers. Welcome to Creative Distillation, where we distill entrepreneurship research into actionable insights. I am your host, Jeff York, Research Director at the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder. And I am here today without my co-host, Brad Werner. We are still hanging out at Real Soda and Real Bottles here in Los Angeles. And I am, however, joined by one of my very favorite academics, somebody whose writing I greatly admire and who has been a friend of mine for many years, Professor Sean Hyatt. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Sean. So Sean is a professor of strategy at the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. And Sean and I graduated with our PhDs right around the same time. So That's right. We knew each other as doctoral students at conferences, Jeff. So we- Well, in fact, you remember how we met. Was it in Charlottesville? No. Was it at Cornell? No. No, tell me. Okay, so... <laughs> So I was uh, getting ready to write my dissertation, and I knew that I really wanted to write about entrepreneurship in an industry that had some environmental impacts. And at the time, biodiesel was like a really big topic. I had a friend who was a biodiesel entrepreneur, yeah. and you know, people had written, uh, one of Sean's uh, colleagues in his PhD program had published a paper on wind energy, other people had published on solar energy, and so I was like, oh, I could write about this biodiesel. This is just this fascinating thing. And so I happened to meet uh, Wes Sign, who's a professor at Cornell, was Sean's advisor. And Wes was like, oh, that's a really interesting idea. You probably would want to talk to Sean Hyde about that, though. I think he's doing some work in that area, which was Wes's very, very nice way of letting me know that I should probably not do that. And so, <laughs> so then I'm like, oh, Sean Hyatt. So I spent like the next uh, two days like Googling um, Hyatt, the hotel chain, and never ever figuring out the spelling, think assuming your name was spelled that way, could never find. So then I was trying to Google Sean, S-H-A-U-N, <laughs> yes. couldn't find you. Like So Sean's name is S-H-O-N-H-I-A-T-T, which makes it really hard to find someone named Sean Hyatt when you just don't know anything yes. about them. Eventually, somehow found you. I think I called Wes back. Like, this guy doesn't seem to exist. He's like, oh, it's spelled this way. <laughs> called Sean up. Uh, he's a very nice guy. I call. I was like, yeah, I'm thinking about studying the biodiesel industry. And Sean, being the lovely person he is, says, oh, that's really interesting. I've been studying it for about two and a half years and have hand collected all these data about everything across the country of every biodiesel producer. And at that moment, I just said, oh, well, 
I guess I won't do that because uh, this guy <laughs> has got it set up. But actually, it was enormously helpful to me, Sean, because had I tried to study biodiesel, I wouldn't have done nearly as good of a job as you and your co-authors have done in studying that. And I never would have gone and learned about green building and the lead uh. building standard, which is why I ended up doing my dissertation on. And I, that anyway, without talking about my own work, got me a lot of things published. And I think it's just a fascinating area. And Sean has, of course, now published much of his work about biodiesel. That's right. Yeah. So most of my research focuses on the two sectors of energy and agribusiness. Yep. And also the confluence of the two, which would be like biofuels. Uh, exactly. And so what I love about your work, Sean, is that you do so many different sectors. I mean, you, you said that like like you only do like, he says energy and agribusiness, like Sean does two things. But no, no, no. Sean studies so many industries. And, you know, sitting here, of course, I can't help but think about your, your, your first paper that I think you ever published, which is an in my opinion, a, a classic. I really love that paper. I love all your work. But uh, from Paps to Pepsi, and I can't remember the second half of the title because I <laughs> can you remember it? Like, yeah, the I, deinstitutionalization of social practices and the creation of entrepreneurial opportunities. <laughs> yes. So if, if Brad was here, he'd be like, why don't you just stick with the first part? Like, <laughs> it's, it always, it's always the stuff after the colon that upsets Brad. You know, it's always yes. like the catchy part. But, 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 uh, but we're sitting here. If you haven't heard the previous episode, we're here at uh, Real Soda and Real Bottles. Uh, we just talked to Danny Ginsburg, the founder here. And uh, Sean and I are sitting here in this uh, 50s uh, soda shop kind of setting. We're surrounded by paraphernalia. I just, this is the perfect setting to talk to you. I almost felt like you and, and Danny were uh, brothers by another mother or something. <laughs> yes. Your love of, of, of this, this industry. I mean, uh -huh. tell, us, tell us a little bit about that paper because I think yeah, it, I, no, I, you'll describe it better than I There's actually like a family history component to that paper. Um, and this is what I actually tell many doctoral students when they think about, well, what should I study? And I said, we right. got to do stuff that, you know, you're passionate about. And, right. you know, for me, most of my topics come about just through my experiences living life, yeah. right? Uh, growing up on a farm in Idaho, uh, working on our family's dairy farms, hence I do a lot of the agribusiness. Right. Uh, but then also Idaho has a lot of energy, hydropower, natural resources. Sure. So, but anyway, this came about actually right after I, I married my wife. So we had some time. Mm -hmm. before I started my graduate program at Cornell. So right. for that summer, I got really into genealogy. And I'm okay. still actually to this day a genealogical hobbyist. Really? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. And so, so I was... So when you get tired of like your day job doing awesome research... You go do some more research for fun. Exactly. Oh, per perfect. Yeah, that, that's, right. That's, just that's going why you're in. So productive. That's right. And uh, <laughs> you know, building out my family lines, not just mine, but other people's. You know, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. figuring out and seeing how we're all related. Oh, well, in the process of doing like this genealogical work, uh, I found out that my wife and I were actually cousins. Uh, oh. Oh. <laughs> well, actually, ninth cousins twice removed. <laughs> okay, so, that's good. Yeah. Ninth cousins twice removed is far enough back. Right? I mean, that's yeah, like 1500. I, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I think it sounds far enough for me. Yeah, no, I, I was like that for the shock factor. I, I've just been watching the uh, the new Game of Thrones series. You got me a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so in that process, I, I found out that, uh, you know, my great grandparents, and I had known right. a little bit about it, but not much, right. but they were entrepreneurs. Right. First, they started out as like, automobile dealers in Montana of like Holmes automobiles. And then when that went bust, they started up a new dealership of a new automobile company. Cause there were, you know, remember many automobile companies that in the yeah. 1910s and 1920s. Sure. 
Well, in the process of doing this, they realize, you know, automobiles is kind of hit and miss. The manufacturers aren't that good, but we believe cars are going to be a big thing. And so there were four brothers and they said, you know, we think that there's a future for drive-ins. And mind right. you, this is like in the late 1920s, 1930s. I mean, was there even like a movie industry then? I, mean, I guess there was. There was well, drive in restaurants. Drive in oh, restaurants. restaurants. Okay, I'm sorry. That's I, right. I was just at Quentin Tarantino's theater last night uh, here in LA, <laughs> so I've got movies on the mind. Yeah, so, so drive in restaurants. restaurants. Okay, and wow. so they and said. The 20, but if you think about that, in the 2030s, that was just like a totally outrageous that's idea. That's right. I'm sure. That's right. But the automobile was like, they were really big into automobiles. A lot of people sure. were enthusiasts at the time. Right, right. And so they said, well, if we're going to do that, we need to have something to anchor. You know, we need a theme. And uh, yeah. there was this company called Triple X Root Beer. Triple X um, Which was a company based out of Galveston, Texas. Okay. And it had started in 1912 as a brewery. It was the right. Galveston Beer Company. But because of prohibition. Right. It had to convert or shut down. And so they converted to Triple X Root Beer and barely making it. So they contacted this company right. and said, look, we'll give you a lifeline. You give us all the rights to this Triple X Root Beer, everything, to okay. distribute it, to sell it, to use the naming on everything right. west of the Mississippi. And, <laughs> and they bought it. Uh, Galveston, Texas said, sure, you well, got it. Not? What do we care? And like. so they took that Triple X Root Beer, uh -huh. the drink, as well as the brand and right. set up a bunch of these drive-in triple X root beer restaurants throughout the Pacific oh. Northwest and, and Northern California. So this is so like up a precursor down the coast. to A&W, I guess. Like, that's exactly right. They yeah. were a precursor and ended up being like a competitor also yeah, with A&W, sure. sure. but that's like the night, you know, happy days, you know, right, right, <laughs> right, right, like, right, this yeah, ended yeah. up being a big thing in the fifties, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, it's where sure. the peak, the roller peak skating waitresses and all that stuff. That's exactly right. In fact, uh. that's my grandfather who ended up working in the great grandfather. That's how he met my grandmother because she was actually a roller skating waitress oh in one of the restaurants. That's awesome that you know all this. Yeah. So anyway, but anyway, in the process of learning about this in the family history, I was like, right. wow, so that's interesting. This Triple X Rupert used to be a brewery company. I mean, yeah. how common was that? And I right. did a little bit more digging and I realized, wow, the soft drink industry really came about because of the temperance movement. Yeah, There's yeah, a story sure. here. Who knew that social movements could actually create entrepreneurial opportunities? Uh, wait, I got to stop for a second. This is one of the first times we've had an actionable insight for PhD students on the show. We usually focus on, on, on entrepreneurial actionable insights. I think there's actually some actionable insights here for entrepreneurs as well. I want to just see if you agree with this, Sean, to point out that like looking for a way to create a product, you don't necessarily have to come up with a brand. Uh, you just got to figure out where is there a brand I can license and leverage that somebody else has already developed that has some cachet that appeals to me and I think will appeal to my customers and licensing that brand and then bringing it to a different a different vertical is a really effective strategy actually and geographic location exactly. and geographic location so so our students are often like I don't have a great idea I'm not Elon Musk I'm like no you're not thank goodness and so it's fine you don't have to you know, you can be an entrepreneur without creating brand new innovations from scratch so there's an actionable insight for people to think about as a story. Now, what I want to talk about, though, because yes. Brad's not here, is PhD students. So you were saying doing something you're passionate about. Like, I'm just imagining you giving, I assume Pabst to Pepsi was your job talk. Or, or, no, it wasn't. No, actually. it you wasn't. It, it was a paper I developed in, yeah. uh, in my courses as right. a doctoral student right. and, and 
Because we were so jealous of you. Everyone else, everyone else was just like, oh, my God, how did Sean publish this paper Like before he even came out? Anyway, suffice to say, uh, Sean is an amazing academic, an amazing writer. That's the other thing I love is your, your papers are always written in an interesting manner where I can just read them and just enjoy them for the writing. But um, when you go out and you're giving job talks and people are asking you about this paper, of course, like your ability to tell this paper and why you're interested in it, I think is super important. Like you were saying, doing something you're passionate about, but it's not just like, hey, I'm passionate about electric vehicles because, you know, that's changing the whole industry. You're, you're actually passionate about this because it's linked to your family. That's and right. Where you come from. Yeah, that's right. There's a there's a personal attachment aspect to it. Yes. And I think that's really important. I think PhD students often miss that. I think a lot of people miss that in research overall. I, I mean, I think of a time and uh, we, had, we were interviewing somebody, right? Mm-hmm. And he was studying the hotel industry. And he was saying something. I don't even remember what he was saying. It was so boring. But anyway, somebody was like, well, you know, I used to work in the hotel industry, and I just don't think that's true necessarily. That's not how we would run things. And I was at, you know, Marriott for several years, and that's not what would happen. Like, why do you think that is the case? Like, well, these data show it. And like, well, have you talked to anyone in the hotel industry? And this guy's like, no. <laughs> and we're like, well, you are staying at a hotel right now, right? I mean, this is not like trying to get access to like, you know, NASA scientists or something. This is like literally walk into a hotel. They have to talk to you. Like they have no and choice. That, that is, uh, that's another thing that yeah. I have too. When I do yeah. reviews of papers, I'm yeah. like, so what evidence do you have? I mean, it's nice that you've collected some data, yeah, right? yeah, some analyses, data, data correlations. But I'd love to hear some stories. I want to see some qualitative evidence. And, yeah. um, and of course, that's been a thing. And all my papers, I dive yes. in, I interview 20 to 30, 40 people in every right. context within these large verticals of agribusiness or energy to try to understand what's going on. What do you think are driving the factors and right. why are you in it? How did and you I discover think that's why I love your papers, even though they're done with econometric research, usually, not yeah. always, but statistical analysis. Yeah. The story behind it is clear. And it's clear that you know what you're talking about. I mean, anybody that just listened to the first you know, 10 minutes of this podcast, probably, you know, I think other than Danny... <laughs> <laughs> I've never met anyone that knew more about the soft drink industry than you. And he may not know more. I don't know. But okay. All right. So your grandfather had done I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I will do that periodically. Oh, yeah. You know, I no problem. I really think like this is a problem, not just with PhD students, but in our field of people doing research, not on topics that if you don't care about what you're studying for some sense of it being like actionable, real, or at least interesting, then why would anyone else? And I really feel like our field has suffered from that. I think that drives a lot of the the why management, um, and and you know, broadly is in a little bit of a crisis because we tend to study things that we can publish rather than things where actually are interesting or yes. useful. Yes. Um, so that's kind of led then, I guess we could pivot on to my dissertation topic, which you mentioned already, the biodiesel paper, right? So I, yeah. I mentioned that I grew up, you know, working on our family's dairy farm. In the summertime, right. I'd work for the wheat farmers and, you know, drive the combines and harvest the wheat. Wow, I didn't and I said, that. man, you guys got the easiest job. <laughs> you plant in the spring or the winter, you take the winter off, and then during harvest time, you just sit in a tractor yeah. and you harvest it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is the type of farmer. I always said, if I'm going to be a farmer, I'd be a wheat farmer that, for be, sure. Yeah, that's right? definitely easier than a lot of other Dairy farming. farmer, it's 24 Ooh, hours, seven days a yeah, week. That's yeah, right. You're always um, animals. And, oh. Yeah. So anyway, uh, but with that, like, we were never organic. Right. Certified organic, but everything sure. that we did was organic. Right. If we spent the money and knew anything about it, we would have been organic sure, at the time. Sure, sure. 
So that's kind of led to the research on the biodiesel as well as my organic certification research because just having lived it, the farmers themselves trying to find new avenues of revenue, which is what pushed the biodiesel. Right. And then, the, of course, the organic, the farmers who really believed in it, right. right, and wanted to get the value for their growing techniques. Yeah. Right. That's what led to this organic certification. Right, right. So anyway, yeah, that's, that's sort of like the food aspect. And it kind of moved also over to the energy. Right. And I grew up in, you know, same Idaho. I, so I, yeah, I, just go ahead. Quick, I, yeah. I, I want to list off the things I know you've studied. Yes. Because I know there's a lot of other ones. All right. So soft drink industry. Correct. Uh, we talked about biodiesel. GMOs. GMOs, genetically modified organisms. That's right. The organic food certification. Yeah. I know you've done things also in wind energy and about social movements. So, yeah, now we're on the energy side. Right. Yeah. You, you, hydropower. Hydropower. Uh, you, you said you were doing something on cheese now? Uh, yes. So I've got a, I got one other project on geothermal that oh, hopefully geothermal. I forgot I'm about going your, to get really that out cool real stuff soon. There. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, now I've got this new one on back to the craft industry, like soft drink on cheese. Oh, and w- don't forget wood oh. pellets. Oh, yes. The wood pellet industry. Okay. <laughs> John, I mean, totally. We forgot crazy. about that like, one. No, I mean, it's just amazing. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm really, I mean, you're my friend. I'm not trying to suck up to you, but there's very few scholars that study this many different industries. Yeah. That's one of the problems. I don't have the economies of scale like others <laughs> right. do. They'll, they'll take one topic right. and they'll publish five papers using oh, the same I mean, data. 20 papers, um, 30 papers. That's the unfortunate <laughs> thing is yeah. that. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm not very efficient with my data, but I'm trying right. to become more efficient. But right? you're interesting. Yes. I mean, so anyway. So I, I just want to mention this one paper because I think this is the latest paper you published. So yes. I want to make sure we mention your latest paper. We'll come back to the cheese. I want to learn yeah. more about that. Shared fate and entrepreneurial collective action in the U.S. wood pellet market. Wow, that's a, a t- Brad would like that title. That's a very straightforward title. There's no colon in it. It's yes. an organization science. Uh, I think it's in press still. Has it actually come out? In it issue? just came out in issue. Okay, yes. So it just came out. In this is with uh, Sean is the first author. That's Hyatt, H-I-A-T-T. This is an organization science. And uh, it's co-authored with his uh, frequent co-author, I think. You yeah, Sun Chun Park. He and I were both uh, in the doctoral program together at Cornell. Oh, I didn't know that. And he is at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology in Seoul. Yes. So, so tell us a little bit about this guy. I know there's this, this um, string in your work of not just studying entrepreneurs, but industries. And particularly how movements, meaning social movements, nonprofit organizations, uh, social change drives opportunity or uh, drives entrepreneurs to take different kinds of actions they might otherwise. That's right. That's where most of the, uh, the, the research is. In fact, it's pretty clear in almost all the papers <laughs> yeah. that I've published so far. There is some sort of social movement aspect of it that's either right. creating the opportunity or, like you said, forcing them to change their strategies right, right. and well, move I mean, in a different like direction. The, paper, the Pepsi paper is all about how the women's temperance movement, I believe that's correct, yes. right, actually almost completely unintentionally, at least as far as I read and what you talk about in the paper, created the soft drink industry. That was not their goal. No, it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) And if they knew what they, you know, that the kids would get addicted on soft drinks, they probably would have never done that, right? It's actually, you know, it's it's one thing we're sitting here, you know, real soda and talking to Danny about all these like fun products. I mean, I probably have drank way too much soda this morning because I'm just that kind of person. But I mean, this is meant to be like a fun treat, right? It's like, and and it's it's like, you were talking about the humor, but now... The industry has evolved to such a point where I think almost it's predatory in these. I mean, these are not soft drinks or energy drinks. I just look at the way that energy drinks are marketed and bang, for example, my kids have told me how bang is like, you know, it costs half as much and has twice as much caffeine. I'm like, 
So you're basically encouraging children to look for bargains to intoxicating things. <laughs> I mean, that's not good, right? I mean, yeah, it's certainly yeah. not what these folks were intending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting if you look at the evolution of it. Um, but yeah, and what I love about that paper is that I was able to identify two types of entrepreneurs. Right. There were the entrepreneurs who were completely kind of bought in onto the ideology. Sure. Like hires root beer, right? Who, right. you know, at first called it uh, hires uh, root ale or something oh, like that. Because they I were believe. trying to like. Root tea, sorry. Root oh, tea. He okay. was a teetotaler. Oh, just I like see. so he was an ideologue. So he's trying to create this alternative. Yeah, he wanted to create product. an alternative for the coal miners in Pennsylvania. Wow. For them to get off of beer. I bet that went over. And so yeah, so he created this this drink and he well, named I guess it. He did. They're still around. He named it root tea. <laughs> right, right. But then other people are like, you know, uh, if you really that that's not gonna sell. Like, right, right. It, but if you if you change it to root beer, yeah. right, yeah. then people might actually buy it. Yeah. And then you have at the other extreme, which I use an example is Coca-Cola. Right. Right. So these were the basically they were pharmacists most of them right and they just saw the economic opportunity they didn't buy into the temperance ideology right none of them were right. as far as i knew were actually teetotalers yeah but they saw an opportunity that they could take their pharmaceutical products that they were selling and market them as a substitute for hard drinks yeah yeah sure and hence the the term soft drink came about yeah. to distinguish between a hard drink yep so, so soft drink, meaning just a drink that is not hard. That's right. No alcohol. Yes. So it's a totally different thing. But then there, weren't there also entrepreneurs that just sort of said, well, there's all these resources laying around as the alcohol industry was basically driven out of business. Yeah. Maybe I can just pick those up and That's I can right. use those. And you saw that. Some of them would bought up some of these old brewery plants just yeah. on the cheap, right? Right. And reconverted them to produce soft drinks. Right, right, right. So you've got... All these different entrepreneurial things. And so this actually reminds me of a thing. Um, Magalie Delmas at, at UCLA has recently written a book called The Green mm -hmm. Bundle, where she talks about, and I know you've done tons of things in like organics, environmental products. And she talks about this idea of like, you can't package a product based on non-self-interest. Well, you can, and some people will buy it. But then you're kind of, if you think about the adoption curve and you have early adopters, you sort of get stuck there, which means your product never gets to scale, yeah. which means you never grow the industry, which means you never have the impact you have. So it's sort of like what you're talking about even back then. Like people had to market the product based on, I mean, it's not in their self-interest, obviously, to consume beer, despite the name of this podcast, despite what we do on the podcast. Uh, you know, we're well aware that's not like a, a necessarily healthy or good choice to make. But they had to market it, such as but the words ginger it. ale, right. gin, birch beer, right. and ginger beer, right? Right, right, so, right. There are all yeah. these things like that. So they had to make it sound like that so maybe people would first would buy it by accident. I mean, <laughs> I'm sitting here drinking cheer wine. We actually were talking about that earlier. Cheer Which wine. is non-alcoholic. Right, brand out of North Carolina. And, and, and Danny was just telling us earlier, this is actually came out of a, a, a wine producer started to make this cherry beverage because they had to use their equipment for something. During Prohibition. Yeah, yeah. And then you've yeah. done work also in the organic foods industry yes so, and they faced the same situation exactly. jeff right they either they had to scale up or they would become really they could never grow so they had right. i mean the papers about the difficult trade-offs they had to make yeah market mediators and the trade-offs of legitimacy seeking behaviors and nascent category this one's also in organization science with brandon lee uh who's at the uh, melbourne school of business and uh, mike lonsbury at the university of alberta Two yeah. other people that write really great papers. That's right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's the thing. The entrepreneurs had to make a trade-off. Do we stay pure, ideologically right. pure, 
or do we start changing our metrics in this case what does it mean to be organic mm. so that we could grow because guess what the retailers yeah they want something measurable yeah. and they don't like, they need also more quantity. Right. So we need more farmers to enter the market. But if we make it too pure. That's right, if it's too pure, no one's gonna wanna enter. So this is what led to the dilution of what many people would say what organic meant during yeah. this period in order to grow the market. All right, I think that's an actionable insight. And this actually is gonna bring us to your wood pellet paper. I wanna talk a little bit about that because I think I really like that paper a lot. And I think it actually brings a lot of the ideas from your other work to the forefront of, uh, of how this plays out, which is you know, what we're all trying to do. I mean, despite uh, my usual co-host Brad's intentions, we are trying to actually do things that are useful to entrepreneurs. At least you are, I know. So it's really interesting, like this idea of like you're in a market. These people, at least at the beginning of the market in organics, are driven by their desire to move to a more ecologically sustainable way of agriculture. But... If you make it too pure, you can never get the scale. No. And do you ever have students that, that face this kind of dilemma? Like, do you teach entrepreneurship now? I am teaching right now our strategy classes. Oh, yes. wow. Oh, that's, that's a shame. You should be teaching entrepreneurship. <laughs> be, I mean, I'm Speak sure. to the dean. No. I will. I will. I'm going to send a word to the dean of the Marshall School of Business. Once people hear this podcast, that's what's going to change that's everything. Right. Your, your, your schedule's going to completely change. Yeah. Um, so I run into this all the time with young entrepreneurs. I'm sure you've seen it too, where it's like, because of your knowledge and the things you've done, people like want advice on starting these environmentally relevant organizations, but they want to be so pure. That's right. And, and this goes back to this idea you've written on this, the hybrid logics, right? right? There's this one logic where, yeah, we want to make good. And, but the, the hybridity is like there's a market-based. If you're not making money, you will not be able to actually have a positive <laughs> impact. Matter. And so they focus so much on either the social environmental logic, this aspect yeah. of having a positive societal impact right. to the expense of actually making money that they'll never be able to do anything. Right. So that's why you have to have, you know, that market base. You yeah. have to be profitable. Right. And that's unfortunately, they don't think about that very often. Well, and you know, what's even more not those that really want to make a difference. Right, right, right. Yeah. They, they have to. I, so we're getting ready to go to the social entrepreneurship conference at USC. And I know you're, you're teaching and have other things, so you're probably not going to be over there that much. But I got to say, my experience in the past with the conference, and I don't know, because the first time it's been in person since before COVID, so it yes. be quite different. Who knows? Things have changed. It's almost like we went through a little time warp here where, you know, we just four years went away, and now here we are in the future. I've noticed that conference, this is not a phenomenon that is limited to practitioners <laughs> we often see at least i often see my colleagues in academia who are interested in in studying social entrepreneurship focusing much more on the social impact which is important and obviously the reason to study these things to some extent rather than the business models that actually enable it and that's why i really like about your work because you are looking at the societal impact but you're also looking at how and why do these industries actually make it or not that's right because if they don't make it, there is no impact. Yes. So that brings me, I want to talk about your latest paper. I'm sorry we're going kind of circular. Sean's written a lot of papers. I like all of them, so I want to make sure I, I hit a bunch of them. But I've never had them on the podcast. Definitely want to have you back again sometime. <laughs> Tell us about yeah. shared fate and entrepreneurial collective action in the U.S. wood pellet market. So this is also an idea I had growing up because it was a timber and agricultural community where I grew up. Right. Um, when I was a kid. The people worked in the mills or they, they uh, had farms. And uh, one of the byproducts of mills is sawdust. And so this sawdust, the thing is, well, what do you do with all that? 
don't know. Well, that's the thing. In the 1930s, the Potlatch Lumber Company came up with the idea. They said, we've got all this sawdust in Lewiston, Idaho. What are we going to do with it? Well, we believe we could probably maybe compress it and make these like presto logs that could burn. And they did a bunch of experiments. And for about five years, they finally figured out the type of pure sawdust they needed, the type of dryness and the pressure they needed to compress it, where you could stick these presto logs, say, in like a fireplace. Yeah. And they burn without any smoke, right? They burn very clean in a way. They might cleaner than normal wood, right? There are right. no sparks or anything like that. Cool. So they sold those for a while, and then the yeah. patents expired. Uh-oh. And when the patents expired in the ni- late 1970s when we had our energy crisis, sure. entrepreneurs are looking around. What can we do? Right. We don't have enough oil to heat people's homes, right. and the oil price is super expensive. Yeah, I mean, it's happening in the U.K. right now. That's I mean. right. And so they saw these patents from the potlatch that were now expired. And they said, you know, uh-huh. we could miniaturize this. Yeah. We could take what they've done and what, like, what grain producers do for animal feed, mm-hmm. bring these together, and we could produce wood pellets similar to like grain pellets, right. but at a much higher pressure like potlatch did right. to expunge right. all of the moisture out, use the lignin, natural wood lignin to keep it together. Yeah. And then we could sell this as fuel. Okay. They then worked together with some people who made stoves because you need to have a special stove for wood pellets, meaning you need to have a lot of air and oxygen blowing in. If not, you get a little bit of smoke and they wanted to be able to produce a product that had basically zero emissions except for just like carbon dioxide. And so the two of them came together, the wood pellet stoves built it based on the product. And then you see this market starting to grow, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the whole purpose of the market they believed is that they were going to be a sustainable energy producer. We're getting off of fossil fuels. We're getting right. off oil. We have all this sawdust everywhere yeah. from the mills. We could take this waste and make it. Right, right. And so the paper's about, all right, so this is how the, the industry emerged. Right. But how well did they actually stay together and keep on this message, right? Because we know that yeah. framing and like how you market your products matter right, for right. growth. Yeah, and, and, and for new industries, it's absolutely critical. Exactly. Like how is industry framed? Because it's going to face headwinds not from just incumbents, but also from other stakeholders. And incumbents are going to try to recruit people and helping to suppress that new industry. I mean, this is just the story of entrepreneurial industry emerging. That's right. It happens over and over again. And so in the 1990s, we had a huge environmental movement, right. particularly focused on forestry and right. trees right where they didn't want any type of trees to be cut or milled nor did they want any type of wood products to be produced even waste products like sawdust right and so they began attacking not only the upstream supply chain but actually directly the wood pellet producers themselves notwithstanding they said no no wait a minute we're we're using wood waste right but they're like no 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 you're bad you're evil Right. They, wow. We don't believe what you're saying. We don't believe you're renewable. <laughs> right. In our eyes, you're not renewable. Yeah. And so yeah, in this sure. paper, we're looking at the competitive strategy, the framing. Do they stick together mm-hmm. or to create a collective identity to grow the market? Yeah. Or do they actually start yeah. competing with each other? Right? right. Which can be detrimental when you want to grow a big market. Oftentimes, the argument, at least, right. is that you want to have a few dozen or so kind of work together sort of like an industry association to grow it yeah. because there's like a common cause for oh, growth. Oh my goodness. This is like in this podcast, we have yet to meet a brewery founder in the craft brewing industry that thought they actually competed with else. I mean, they really, they to a person talk about how the industry collaborates to grow the industry yes. together. We just haven't ever had That's one. right. Growing industries collaborate with each other. Right. Unless they face these threats. And that's what this right. paper is about. Yeah. It's like, what happens if you throw them these threats? And we look at yeah. two different threats, like okay. individual versus common. Yeah. 
how does it affect the degree to which they work together? Right. And what we find is that when they're the common oh, wait, thread. Individual yeah. versus common. Come back. So, so you mean yes. like uh, a threat against an individual company versus a threat against the industry? Correct. Okay. Yes. So industry-wide so, threat. So one company is being threatened with a lawsuit versus people are mounting a movement to ban the industry. That's right. Okay. The more common threat against the industry, people, they continue to work. In fact, it enhances their ability to work together. Sure. They fight back as a group. Oh, yeah. But when they start picking off one or another, mm-hmm. right, the ones that get targeted are like, oh, oh gosh. I know yeah, what yeah. you're not coming to support me. Right, right. All right. Well, I'm not going to support you. Oh, right. We're going to differentiate products. It's a dissolution of trust. That's right. That's exactly what is happening in the industry where you had the individual targeting. Right. All right. And then other ones seem to want to capitalize on it. Like, hey, mm. you know, Bob's pellet mill down the road's getting targeted right now yeah. in protest. <laughs> yeah. We might be able to pick up some of his customers. Oh, man. We could go pick up his equipment if he get Bob goes under. That's Sean right. will be on business here. Yeah. So that's wow, about yeah. It's interesting. It's almost like the. So you're actually challenging some pretty deeply held ideas from economics here, actually. Um, yeah, because, we cite Eleanor Ostrom's work on collective right. action. I think you, yeah. you also cite Mansur Olson in this. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and the idea that like, because Olson Ostrom really, you know, without getting too, well, yeah, it's an academic podcast. So let's get pretty nerdy. Yes. I mean, it's like, uh, and Brad's not here, so we can get super nerdy. Um, like, okay. But, but. Olson's like insight was the larger the number impacted, the more difficult it is for individuals to collaborate to solve the problem. And I mean, he didn't talk about climate change, but that's the ultimate example. It's like, you know, because everyone contributes to work contributing to climate change right now through multiple actions we've taken this morning, no intent to do so. Everyone is. So it's really hard for us to coordinate and solve the problem. But you're saying at the industry level, that this uh, and 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 so if Brad was here, he'd be like, "Well, of course that's the case." You know, duh. Uh, he's not here, so that's my Brad impression. That's what Brad actually sounds like to me. In case anyone's wondering, I think it's probably what he sounds like to our listeners too. I, if I think about, it. Uh, you know, uh, sorry, like that. So that's my Brad impression. But what you're saying is actually, I'm cracking Joel up at least. The um, the threat affecting more people in the industry actually pushes them together to work against that threat whereas when one or two get picked off it just sort of collapses it begins to collapse not only from those that are being targeted but also their immediate peers but that's bad news for everybody yes everyone's rushing towards like uh what is olsen's phrase mutually assured destruction correct race to the bottom huh that's really interesting yeah that's important that okay so I, i can't get my chime up quick enough here but all right here we go all right, so that's an actionable insight, I think, for sure. And not. I think it does matter for individual entrepreneurs. Sean, you tell me if I've got this right. So let's say you're in an emerging industry, and you start to see, like, you know, there's only, like, five people in the industry, five companies, and you start to see, like, all right, Sean's company is getting attacked. Awesome, that means I'm going to dominate this industry. Well, that's actually probably not such a hot idea because you're going to get painted with the same brush. You could be targeted next, but they don't think about that. Right, right. I think it's taking, and I think this actually, whoa, more actual insights. (laughs) Actual insight chimes are always out of control. I'm sorry, Sean. Um, Oh, God, I lost No, okay, this is really important considering what we teach our MBAs in strategy, right? Because we we teach them about, well, I bet, let me ask you this. In your classes on strategy, do you teach some of your research? I I hope so. Yes, I do. 
because this is not what normal strategy people would say. They say, "Oh, look, your 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 you know competitive dynamics." For example, you say, "Oh, well, your competitor's in trouble. That's a good time for you to make investments, double down, and and, and attack, right?" But in fact, that's totally wrong in an emerging industry. Agree? That is, is that-, that is absolutely right, and they don't consider the fact that. Especially because you're a peer, meaning that you're yeah. in that competitor set, meaning right. you're likely to be geographically kind of located near that is how we, we measure because that's how sure. competitions measure. Oh, okay, so yeah. That you could be targeted next. So remember, it's not like these, uh, <laughs> these stakeholders are going to go away, right? Right, right. Their, their gonna... ultimate goal is to get rid of an industry. <laughs> yeah, they'll be like, well, we got rid of Sean's company. Now Jeff's company, we like it. That, that, that's, that's right. A, that's a great company. You know, it's doing the exact same thing. By definition, they're doing something similar enough because they're defined as competitors. Yes. Wow. Is that indeed what happens here? Like when people go after the wood? Because I know this this industry has been under a lot of attack, uh, especially actually I know more recently in the UK, there's been a lot of criticism yet, as they've moved into burning wood. That's um, true. Yet, not necessarily. I'll, I'll tell you wood. right now, the wood pellet industry is what's keeping the lights on in the UK right, right now. Right, exactly. Because they've lost the natural gas right. from Russia. And so the UK actually is the number one importer of US wood pellets. And they, you know, they're using that to fuel wow. their boilers to produce electricity. Wow. So without this, this infrastructure kind of already in place, right. the UK would be in a much worse situation right but now. But still faces a lot of headwinds from environmental groups. That is correct. But I mean, what would you rather burn, wood pellets or coal? <laughs> yeah, I think wood pellets are, I mean, <laughs> if you have a choice, then the wood yeah, pellets are obviously course. less CO2 emissions, less dirty. And, and plus, it and they're, re, they're a waste product. They're renewable. Right, I right. mean, where else do they go? To the landfill, I suppose. Yeah. All right. So we're, yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. So sometimes things are not as simple as they seem uh, when you look at these emerging industries. And I think this happens a lot with EVs too. Like people, people either unrealistically um, tout electric vehicles as solving all our problems. Oh, and, yeah. yeah, and, and we'll like, have enough like metals to be able to build. Everyone can go electric in California. Right, right, right. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're gonna, by the way, you, you won't have any choice about it. That's right. But on the other hand, we also have people that try to paint electric vehicles as, oh, they make no progress at all. They're actually worse than the footprints, which is also not true. Like, it's, it's, it's somewhere in the middle, and it really depends on the source of your energy. There are trade-offs in every energy source. I, right. I mean, that's what my conclusion is, is what I tell all my students as right. well when we study energy industries, is that right. there's no silver bullet. Right. You have to make a trade-off. Which is why entrepreneurs are so important, because we need those experiments. We need people to take those risky bets. We need them to try things so that eventually we can get to a dominant design, which is exactly what you and I are hoping to do some study. I won't, I won't get, uh, give away <laughs> our ideas, but hopefully we're going to collaborate on something soon That's right. where we're looking at that, yeah. how that actually happens. Uh, if I can ever stop being a department chair and actually write something again, which would be really nice, uh, especially because you guys have told me now that department chairs are evil, which I agree with. I don't want to become evil. Sean, will you stop me if I like you know, get too evil? Yes, I will, Jeff. Awesome, I appreciate that. Pull you that. aside at a conference. Well, yeah, yeah, pull you. Jeff, <laughs> you, actually, you actually have pulled me this, given me great advice uh, throughout my career in many conferences. I appreciate it, my friend. You've, uh, I, and if you do see me getting evil, please let me know. Um, and fortunately, you didn't meet my evil podcast uh, co-host, so you don't have to worry about his influence <laughs> on me. That's good. Well, uh, anything else you want to add from your work? Like, what do you mean, work, The, the you? latest stuff, I'll tell you about this recent yeah. project. I, got, I just started up with Chad Carlos and Ben Lewis at oh. Brigham Young University. Great guys. And it's on artisan cheese makers. <laughs> 
And <laughs> so it's so, not enough that you studied all these things. Yeah. Now we got to study you know, artisan back, cheese. So yeah. from energy, uh, we're now moving yeah, you back to artisan the, vegan cheese. <laughs> there you go. Well, That's a whole thing. No, they're they're in our data set. Trust okay, me. awesome. Trust I went to an artisan vegan cheese there. party. Shockingly, in Boulder, there was an yeah. artisan vegan cheese party I attended. Uh, it was quite good, actually. Some of them were delicious. I'm sorry, I just got excited. Uh, yeah, so we're moving back from cheese. my energy vertical to the agribusiness because yeah, yeah, so you know you can see I'm passionate about energy and food, right? Yeah, sure. But anyway, in this, this is like a data that I've been collecting for about five, six years now, looking at every artisanal cheesemaker in the United States. And just recently, wow. uh, uh, we received the data, 10 years of longitudinal data on the, uh, the, the biggest cheese judging competition in the United States. <laughs> so now we've got the data That's on awesome. both the cheesemakers as well so cool. as those that enter their products and whether yeah. they win yeah. and information on the judges. Okay. And there are a couple of questions, but one we also obviously want to know for the entrepreneur is, yeah. How much of a difference does it make to win one of these prizes? Right. Does anybody even care like, yeah. at the end of the day? And if you win one, can you go off and win, say, like the World Cheese Award later, right? Because right. there's actually, that's the highest one. The American yeah. Cheese Society is the biggest thing in North America. Sure. But then you could always go to the World Cheese Awards. Wow. Um, and then such uh, things existed. That's awesome. Yes. There's a whole market. In fact, that makes ben, sense, of Chad, course. Chad <laughs> Carlos and I, we went to the judging competition this last summer in Minneapolis. Nice. Uh, just to see oh, how. Oh, you betcha you, you did. You know, you got that <laughs> cheese competition happening there. So uh, it was um, it, quite an eye-opening experience. You I had bet. everybody in these like lab coats. Right. Right. And there are two judges at each table. One's judging on the technical. One's judging on the marketing okay. aspect of it. So how will it sell? How will consumers like it? The technical actually takes points away, and the marketing adds the points. So it's interesting wow. how they do it two different That's cool. ways. I've never We've heard. got all their judging, their comments, yeah. which are going to be going through and That's coding awesome. all of it. Um, but while we're there, we sat down and I'd listen and I'd kind of listen in as you make it. And I'd say, "So why did you mark that?" And they say, "Well, here." And they'd give me a taste of the cheese. I'd try it and I'd like, notice it on the back of your mouth. Wait five seconds. There, do you got it? And I was like. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it was just eye-opening. I'm still waiting yeah. for the bacon flavor from the chocolate-covered <laughs> maple bacon soda we had earlier. I got But that's the thing, right? And there are just so many cheesemakers, artisans who want to enter this because right. they believe that this is how they – you know, they can get some big media coverage yeah, and they yeah. have a big conference afterwards yeah. where they announce all the winners because this that year. Translate was to the actual market. And that's Does also it, what we're going to look at. We also cool. want to look at the judges right. and, and just I mean, I know also, it does in beer, but beer has become like, you know, there's like untapped or not untapped. Um, God, I'm forgetting the name, of it, but there's so many websites now where you can go look at beer ratings by people. Right. That's right. They have ratings, right? right. So, yes, yeah, so this is kind of similar, except there are awards, which mm -hmm. I think is really cool because you only can win. Gold, silver, bronze. That's it. Oh, that's in it. In any category. You're a top three or nothing. Yeah, in any category. But Interesting. the other thing we look at, too, is the categories have been growing over time. Yeah. And we asked them why. And they said, well, Ooh. we're just seeing that there's a change of taste preference. We get yeah. a ton of people maybe going on this mozzarella, but this mozzarella mm. is very different yeah. than the normal farmstead. Why? Well, this is this should be this is now seems to become a new category. So the next year they'll create a new category. Right. Right. So they're kind of following this artisan cheese as they're developing new products and creating new categories for. Uh, that's cool. These cheese. Well, anyway, that's that's, uh, that's where that's we're going cool. there. Yeah. That should be a. You fun know what project. we should do once you guys get that done? Um, we should go grab the data from the Great American Beer Festival in Denver. Because oh. they do a similar thing. In, in every beer category, they do bronze, silver, oh, gold. Oh, they give awards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that actually happens in the craft brewing industry, too. I didn't uh, know that. I Yeah, and actually, the okay, this is, this is cool. I've we just should, given you a research.
church I yeah, did. Yeah, so. yeah, I know. And I just gave it away. So there no, you go. No, no, no. Go ahead. The, you, no, you know no. that Ben, Chad, and I don't drink alcohol. So we well, probably no, no, no. But that, that, doesn't mean, <laughs> that doesn't mean you can't look at data. No, no. We could actually yeah. actually totally ride on this. No, that, yeah. that could be totally cool, actually. And you could, um, you know what would be interesting is I wonder to what extent the yeah. category itself, cheese being like this food that does not have the neither ethical negative connotation of containing alcohol for many people, nor the positive connotation of alcohol, which is also true for many people. You know, I mean, there's, there's people that care more about that. They're very passionate about it. And they, you know, uh, you know oh, thank you, craft beer, for an excuse for my alcoholism. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it'd just be interesting to look at how the, how the differences are in those two. So. Well, you could think the cheese for your high cholesterol gas. Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> cheese going to Yeah, yeah. Like uh, <laughs> earlier days, like, oh, I found something that said cholesterol. We're all like, what? Artichoke carts. Artichoke carts. Artichoke carts. <laughs> you got to get them at Sam's, not Costco. So another... <laughs> <laughs> Last actionable insight, uh, get your artichoke hearts at Sam's, not Costco. <laughs> Sean, it has been such a pleasure hanging out with you, my friend. It's so great. I, we haven't seen each other in quite some time. Exactly. And uh, it is awesome to hang out with you. Thank you so much for telling tell us about your research. Uh, uh, we're gonna put we're gonna put links in the little thing on the on the podcast so that everybody can look at these papers um, and they could just go to your faculty website. I know you, uh, USC puts a lot of these papers out. Yeah, uh, that would be the, great. The latest one is Shared Fate and Entrepreneurial Collective Action: The U.S. Wood Pellet Market. Uh, we just scratched the surface of this paper. Actually, I mean, we got to the main things, but there's a lot going on in this paper that's really interesting. It's an organization science just came out, and uh, Sean again is a professor of strategy at the Marshall School of Business at USC. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Um, I'm Jeff York. Uh, I'm the research director at the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder, and this was Creative Distillation. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, if you don't like the podcast, if you uh, really want to talk about how much you enjoy it without Brad, uh, please uh, send us an email at cdpodcast at colorado.edu. That's C-N-D as in Creative Distillation, not C-D as in, wow, this spread is C-D and has like things. Uh, yeah, send us that and uh, you know hit the subscribe button that actually does help us out quite a lot i know you know that because you probably have heard a podcast at some point in your life and heard people say things like this but uh we would very much appreciate it and uh thank you again and 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 if stay tuned we're gonna have a whole series of coverage coming up here in uh southern california as we cover the social entrepreneurship conference at the university of southern california thanks we'll see you next time We hope you enjoyed this episode of Creative Distillation, recorded live on location at Real Soda in Real Bottles in Los Angeles. Learn more and order merch and soda at realsoda.com. Learn more about our research guest, Sean Hyatt, on his faculty page at marshall.usc.edu. His paper, From Paps to Pepsi, The Deinstitutionalization of Social Practices and the Creation of Entrepreneurial Opportunities, was published in Administrative Science Quarterly. Check the show notes for a link. We'd love to hear your feedback and ideas. Email us at cdpodcast at colorado.edu. And please be sure to subscribe to Creative Distillation wherever you get your podcasts. The Creative Distillation Podcast is made possible by the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Colorado Boulder's Leeds School of Business. For more information, please visit deming.colorado.edu, that's D-E-M-I-N-G, and click the Creative Distillation link. Creative Distillation is produced by Joel Davis at Analog Digital Arts. Our theme music is Whiskey Before Breakfast, performed by your humble hosts, Brad and Jeff. 
Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here for another episode of Creative Distillation. If you've enjoyed this episode, you may also enjoy Leeds Business Insights. Check them out at leeds.ly slash LBI podcast.